0: Welcome to Think and Act Differently, the modern mining podcast. I'm Katie Humes, founder of Think and Act Differently. Many people wouldn't have exposure to what it takes to design a mine, even those within the industry. In this episode, we'll tackle some of the challenges that project teams face when integrating new technologies, and maybe where they can focus their energies when there's just so much technology available. With me is Brett Triffitt, Growth and Resource Development Manager at Think and Act Differently, And Alan Bai, Professor, Director, Government Advisor and Managing Director of Inbelow Innovating Ecosystems. Wow, Alan, getting that out is a mouthful. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you ended up with so many different hats to wear?
1: So firstly, Katie, it's awesome to be here to have this conversation with you and Brett. So how did I get to this sort of portfolio role? I, I think as I've straddled different parts of our industry, I've I've kind of been fascinated of how the parts work together as a whole and tried to build some empathy for technology companies, government, mining operations people to be able to make a difference on, on how we talk to each other and improve the industry. And so that's how I find myself sort of straddling these roles, which is unique. And I'm kind of privileged to be able to have the opportunity to do that.
0: So please tell me in amongst all that, you find some time to sleep? <laughs>
1: I do. I just have to be very time efficient, uh, Katie. Uh, sleep is a superpower, so it's one of the things that uh, I try and get a lot of.
0: And Brett, such an interesting title, but certainly not where you started out in this industry. What's your story?
2: Well, Katie, I was going to start by um, breaking the ice and sharing a bit of a story about some uh, some memorabilia that I've bought those of you listening won't actually be able to see what I've got in front of me, but it's actually my very first hard hat that I uh, received when I started my very first job as a, a graduate metallurgist back in 1993. So I'm up to 30 years almost to the day um, from when I received my first hard hat, and I was a graduate metallurgist at Gold Goldmines in Cobar. And why I love this hard hat, and I've kept hold of it, all this time is that the first year that I worked as a graduate engineer, the team actually put me on shift as an operator. And it was actually really cool for a young, you know, 21-year-old, very naive city boy coming into a to a gold mine for the first time to spend 12 months, you know, working my way around the plants. So I spent, you know, three months in in all the different areas. Of the plant, and at the end of that twelve months, one of my fellow operators who had really looked after me during that time and kind of took me under his wing drew a mill rat on my uh, on my hard hat, and it was kind of cool because I felt like I'd kind of been indoctrinated then into the or accepted into the the fraternity of of mill rats. So uh, so that was pretty cool, and that was kind of where my my career started. I have had lots of different roles. Uh, Since that time, a bit of a mix of operations, research and development and and technology-focused corporate roles, all the way up to project director, so most recently before joining you in the TAD team. I spent eight years as a project director on three of Oz Minerals' major projects, so I, I hope that qualifies me to uh, participate in this conversation. Um, I've had a bit of a mix, both in the operational side, kind of technology development, project development side, and then you know, major projects as well. So, so that's how I got here.
0: I think certainly qualified, Brett. There's no question about that. Uh, I will try and refrain from calling you the mill rat for the rest, <laughs> of, uh, rest of this episode. I, I want to pick up on where you went there with uh, project development and project design. The entire universe is facing a need to bring resources to market uh, to meet the decarbonization challenges in a way we haven't done before. There's so much that goes in to designing a mine before it gets to the stage where we see it and it's operating. What's been the biggest kind of insight that you've gained over your career in terms of how that process plays out and and maybe where the opportunities are to not just accelerate but to improve that process
2: rather than talking about where the opportunities are i think maybe a place to start is where the difficulties and the challenges are and i guess in my experience through the major projects that i've you know led has kind of covered all of the the, the potential challenges you know firstly you are incredibly time constrained And there's constant pressure to deliver a valuable project. And that time pressure, you know, really squeezes the work that you can actually do in, you know, trying to arrive at, you know, what is a valuable project. You've got lots of different stakeholders, both inside the business, but also outside of the business. And they all have different requirements, different expectations, different things that they want to get out of the project because you are so time constrained and the way that we kind of roll through the the project development process the number of options that you can actually really assess or can be quite limited so you know a typical pre-feasibility study that might take you know 12-18 months our best you can probably do using traditional approaches the 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 best you can do is maybe you know probably less than 20 different scenarios so uh, you can be quite limited in terms of exploring the universe of potential ways that a project can be developed. I guess the next thing is a challenge around the kind of paucity of data that you have um, and the information. You're always dealing with the fact that you don't have all of the information that you would like to have uh, in order to support the decisions and the recommendations um, and to, to balance the risks that you're proposing to take on a project. You know, all-body knowledge is probably one of the key ones there. You've never, ever got enough drilling data. You've never, ever got enough metallurgical data. I mean, all of us as perhaps conservative engineers always want to have as much data as we possibly can. And drilling to get more data, doing more met test work, it just takes a really long time. And that kind of squeezes you when you're under that that time pressure as well. Probably a lot of the opportunities are in those spaces. I think another area that's kind of ripe for conversation here is around technology and how we are able to incorporate new emerging technologies into those into those projects because you're under time pressure um, in particular, and you need to take a certain view around the risk. That you're prepared to take or you're prepared to promote with your sponsors in the business it can be really difficult to incorporate new technology and so we're in this paradigm of reverting back to traditional technologies it's becoming even harder now with technologies emerging at a faster rate and you know how do we change the way we think about technology integration into projects when a new technology might emerge in 12 months' time or two years' time or three years' time, how do you incorporate that into a project that you're looking to promote today? A classic examples, you know, things like autonomy and electrification, the pace of change there is so fast. How do we, how do we accommodate those into, into new projects? So that, I think those are some of the kind of ripe areas for opportunity.
0: Oh, I'd absolutely agree with you. I think we're, we're having to really think differently about how we approach the integration of technology into our decision-making process. Uh, I'm sure you face this all the time, Alan, in the number of roles that you've held. How are you finding the way that people are thinking about technology and project design? And maybe what are some of the changes you've made in the way you approach that to see more technologies being adopted?
1: Katie, I want to answer that question, but I also just want to pick up on some of the themes that, that Brett uh, spoke about in sort of terms of project development this tension in our all body knowledge of these major projects where we've got less than 0.1% of an understanding of the all body in terms of data and drilling and yet on the other side we make final investment decisions where there's an expectation of a 5% accuracy of the of the capital spend and then ultimately NPV model and you you can kind of see the Incongruence of, of those two data points and, and why so many projects fail. You know, there's probably less than 10% of mining projects actually fall within their planned revenue and, and, and timeframe. So this is a, a huge constraint in project development is this, this lack of understanding of uncertainty and variability when we build projects. And it's compounded by the timeframes that are often put on projects teams to, to get to these accurate answers. But I'll just go to your next question, which is, well, how do how do we get technology into solving these problems? I think it's very tempting to look at technology as point solutions. You know, so I'm I'm going to buy a bigger truck, or I'm going to buy a flotation plant. But what's actually required is to think about the the system and the problem that we're trying to solve. And then how we link up technologies and people, process and systems to be able to solve those problems. And I think that's what's changing today is mining companies are really thinking about how the parts need to come together to to solve the problems and, and address uncertainty uh, and bring more confidence in their, in their operational decisions.
0: You mentioned uh, the word people there. I think you know as much as anyone else that knows me, the human side of what we do is very dear to my heart. What's the role of of the people in the decision making seats and and how do we think about risk appetite and the process of accepting lower certainty earlier in the process to keep things moving? What are some of the encounters you've had
1: katie there are, there, are, there are many technology is all about people in my view. you know there's almost no technologies that don't require people to actually run them and direct them, and the adoption rates is directly. Uh, related to people's confidence and, and trust in these systems but what I will say is you know, mining is a very complex business and I think we often make a mistake as people of not recognizing our limitations you know I'll give you a little analogy you know when I get home and my house is a giant mess I put all my stuff in my cupboards then it all looks neat and tidy and it make me, makes me feel a whole lot better. But I haven't solved the problem. And we do this in mining projects where there's an enormous amount of complexity, which we, which we simplify by ignoring the complexity that's there and, and actually increasing the risk of the decision making that we do. So this is, a, this is a key issue. How do we use technology, data, data science to support the decisions that we make in these complex, complex problems?
0: I think my house follows the same process that yours does. Uh, definitely do not open cupboards. Uh, I don't know what you might get. It's such an interesting point. It is absolutely human nature to to not want to deal with complexity if we don't have to. Uh, if we can simplify that, it's definitely a path that, that we would choose. But it makes me think of the time when you very first joined Think and Act Differently. And for those that can create images in their minds – picture Brett walking into a room where there's uh, almost enough post-it notes on the wall to uh, to keep that entire industry propped up. And, I, and I'm pretty sure 90% of what we had on that wall was useless information. Uh, and you certainly didn't hold back from uh, putting that perspective forwards. But it wasn't about the fact that the post-it notes held useless information. It was about the fact that we needed someone like you to lean into a conversation with us and help us think about how we can tackle the complexity problems differently. I don't know if you've got the same memory that I do of your moment when you walked in, but I'd, I'd love to hear your journey from transitioning from being project director into think and act differently.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, Katie. I think there was definitely a, a mindset shift needed for me. But I was at the point in my career where I, where I was ready to to make a change and to try something different, to to think and act differently. And so yeah, I went into that kind of new experiment, I guess, in my career uh, with an open mind and a willingness to be curious and to experiment. And I think that's kind of held me in pretty good stead over the last few years, you know, with us working together. The story about the post-it notes is funny, but I think what I learnt afterwards was that each of those uh, post-it notes contained the perspective of of somebody that thought that that was uh, an important piece of information or an important perspective to share. And I think that's been a, a lesson for me and a change of mindset for me is the importance of perspective and the importance of having diverse voices in the room. And while you might dismiss some of those as frivolous or not very useful you know you know amongst the thousand post-it notes you only need three or four good ones to uh to set you on the right path and to to generate a new perspective or a new or a new approach you know another thing that we actually worked on together at the start of the think and act differently journey we ran a A challenge called Ingenious Extraction, which um, was focused on. The business had sent us a challenge, or set us a challenge, to find a way to, or a new way to turn our copper concentrates into metal products on site. And I had dabbled in this area a little bit in my past career, and I had built a network up of, you know, so-called SMEs and experts, um, the people that had helped me on that project. But when the business set this new challenge, um, I felt a bit paralysed. My immediate reaction was to pick up the phone and call all the usual SMEs and so-called technical experts that I had used in the past. And the reason I was paralysed was because I was worried that if I did that, I was probably going to get the same answer I got last time. And the challenge that we had set as a Think and Act Differently team was that we needed to think and act differently. And so... uh, You'll you remember that I was a bit paralysed, I think, for a few months and a bit sort of concerned about how I was going to approach this, not wanting to repeat the issues of the past. And so kind of opening myself up to taking a different approach, you know, and ultimately we decided to run the Ingenious Extraction Challenge. It was a bit of a revelation for me and and it did take a bit of a, a change of mindset. Yeah, what was cool about that was, in the end, we actually ended up uncovering a whole bunch of new innovators who I'd never heard of before, who had all been dabbling in this space for lots of their career. You know, we uncovered some new ideas, and that was effectively the start of the the TAD ecosystem. That very first challenge. So it's kind of cool to think, you know, where we've come to in the in the process since then, with all the challenges we've run and the growth in the ecosystem has been pretty cool. But that's taken a mindset shift for me, especially.
0: It takes a lot to be willing to be vulnerable and and ask questions of people and and put yourself out there. Uh, But I do know that when we do that, it allows people to connect with us in a way that that they don't normally get the opportunity. Alan, I'm sure you see this all the time, that companies don't ask questions early enough to allow technology companies to get involved early enough and help customise their solutions or even design new solutions uh, for the problems and opportunities that companies are facing. Is that your experience?
1: Absolutely Katie and think like I mentioned it earlier we we tend to drive things down to a, a point solution and we'll go to market to say we need to buy a 200 ton truck what's the price of those trucks or we, we've decided on a flotation plant and we'll go and tender or procure um, a, a set of, of solutions. Very rarely do mining companies frame a problem to be solved at a at a system level that that actually requires a number of companies to come together uh, and bring different uh, solutions. And I think that's one of the things that I've really admired about Tad's role and Tad's work is that you've been bold enough to go to the industry and say, these are the types of problems we're trying to solve as a company. Can you help us and, and bring the outside in?
0: So there's this real challenge between late-stage technologies, and for many people, they'll talk about technology readiness levels, so the technology that's definitely almost at that commercial scale and and ready to come off the shelf, versus technology that's really at that research level and and needs time to to mature. Is there a difference in the way the industry should approach those two?
1: Absolutely, Katie. And I think, firstly, I, I would say that there is the wrong expectations of universities Universities operate in the early stage, TRL1 to TRL4 sort of level, and and, and the product of their work is mostly knowledge and education. It's not technology. There is a whole lot of other work that needs to be done to to mature that knowledge into something that looks like a product. But there is this gap in understanding where, uh, as an industry, we, we engage with the universities and and we, we talk to them about products as if we're procuring something that's going to work on our operations. But it's years and years away. Like universities are incentivized and their KPIs are around build, building knowledge and, and progressing an understanding of something fundamental. As an industry, we need to lean far deeper into uh, universities and, and bring commercial companies, technology companies who are experts in producing products to to bridge that gap. Otherwise, you kind of get the standoff where there's this sort of discussion around universities not commercialising IP and not doing that successfully, and, which is just an unfair position to take. So uh, yes, it's a, it's a gap for us, both from an industry and an academic side, to, to bridge across the knowledge product gap.
0: Are we doing enough to give line of sight to our research communities and our universities around where the industry is heading or where it needs to head?
1: Absolutely not, and and the way to test that, Katie, is if you go into most universities and you have a conversation, do do they have a good understanding of what the fundamental challenges are for the mining industry? And and I think we'd probably find that they wouldn't be able to articulate that very well in general. And I think equally on the on the mining side, there's not that many mining companies who clearly articulate the challenges that they're trying to solve at a tangible level, uh, and communicate that back into into the industry. So we're definitely not doing enough there.
0: Yeah, there seems to be this, you know, kind of time frame separation. You know, Brett, you were saying about the time pressures. I think Alan reinforced that around getting projects developed and, and getting them up and then universities really needing long runs and, and plenty of room to develop things. How, how are we going to overcome that? I think we have
1: to be honest about the time frames here. You know, the product of universities is knowledge and capability. And that, that's a long cycle. Like right? we're building the knowledge, and we're building the people that will solve these problems from the university, commercial companies, met's companies. It's their role, and they're, and they are incentivized to build products that mining companies will buy. And and so it's it's the it's the three industries, so to speak, that need to collaborate more closely if we if we want to change those timeframes. You know, in terms of shortening how we go from knowledge to product, to commercial benefit for mining companies. There's, there has to be a whole lot more collaboration in the middle to change those timeframes. So
0: there's a really nice link there to to risk uh, insofar as when we engage with the, the MET sector, and so for those listening today, the mining equipment technology service providers, we use procurement processes, and a procurement process generally relies on us knowing exactly what we're asking for so that we can do some price comparisons of those that submit against those proposals and, and we can select someone. Brett, is there a space for crowd challenges and problem statements and framings to start to change the way we think about procurement and access to that MET sector?
2: Yeah, look, 100%. Uh, I firmly believe that now, Katie. I was probably sceptical as we've already talked about uh, earlier on, but I think, yes, yeah, certainly in the exploration space as your. are exploring for a technology solution or a system-wide approach I think there's definitely space for crowd work and you know it's really surprising or at least I've been really surprised at how many METS companies there are that are out there innovators who are probably unknown to us and I think perhaps have this view you know, when we've been inside the mining industry for so long that we know everybody that's working on everything. But certainly in my experience is if you put a crowd challenge out to the universe, you'll uncover all sorts of different people who are working on really interesting, really unique solutions. And... Quite often they come from even outside of the mining industry. And I think that's one of the things that really excites me about the crowd challenges that we've run is the opportunity to pull in technology and ideas and innovation from adjacent sectors like, you know, oil and gas, for example. It's one that we're kind of dabbling with with our in situ recovery work there is a lot of um, opportunity in that space to, to bring in new ideas, new innovation, new thinking prior to the formalised kind of tender technology selection procurement process because you need to go through that creative space, that creative stage, I think beforehand in order to, from a systems-wide perspective, you know, understand what, what the best solutions or the best opportunities are going forward.
0: So I can imagine when we start talking to companies that maybe come from medical or agriculture or oil and gas they speak a completely different language to us. How do you overcome that when you start engaging with them and and trying to integrate them into our uh, into our ecosystem?
2: I think you need to allow space in your process uh, to take them on a journey and you know we've done a lot of work including recording some interesting mining 101 videos for innovators coming in from from other sectors to really step them through in very basic terms that they can understand what it is that we actually do because i think there is a real challenge with the general population at large not really understanding the the, the details of what what we do in the mining industry so you know a, a mets company that's sitting adjacent to to the mining industry who is wanting to break into the mining industry, they have a challenge because they don't necessarily understand exactly what it is we do, and they kind of have a sense that they have something that could be of use to us, but uh, they're not quite sure how to approach it and so i think you know patiently taking these people through uh, what it is we do where the opportunities are and kind of going on a co-creation journey together where both of us form a relationship and get to know each other and kind of explore together i think is really important and i think one thing we've tried to offer i guess through the the tad process has been facilitated workshops where we will get a bunch of technical SMEs who know their stuff inside the mining industry to sit with an innovator who's got a, an idea, but they're not quite sure how to how to introduce it to kick around these ideas and, and provide support to people that way.
0: So for those listening and you heard Brett say patience, uh, you couldn't meet two more patient gentlemen than Alan and Brett with the way they put up with me. I'm a geologist, for those that don't know, by training, uh, we loosely use the engineering degree. But Alan, you're a mining engineer. Brett, you're a metallurgist. The three of us come from different backgrounds. Do we even speak the same language, Alan?
1: Yeah, I was smiling when Brett was saying that the language gap between industries outside mining is a challenge, and I was kind of thinking, well, we haven't really solved that in our own backyard yet. And I think you have to look fundamentally as to why that's the case. You know, mining companies are not set up for integration. You know, our operating model and our org model and our incentive model is, is all quite siloed. It's designed for management. And so the requirements to work across disciplines and silos is quite transactional rather than conversational, rather than um, sort of at a system level. How do, how do we operate this business for the, for the best outcome? And I think it's definitely changing, you know, initiatives like geometallurgy and mine to mill, which start crossing silos are are definitely progressing in that uh, language gap. But I think it's one of our most fundamental challenges. Is finding a, a, a more efficient common language be- between the disciplines.
2: I think it's hard enough for uh, for metallurgists to understand the language of of mining engineers and geologists, let alone uh, trying to invite people in from outside of the outside of the industry.
0: I think there's uh, been a real skill built in learning how to ask questions and and be curious and and listen uh, when people respond, and rather than jumping to conclusions, it's been certainly something I've had to work on. I'm I'm sure you're the same.
2: Oh look a hundred percent. And yeah, you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us as as professionals in the industry to be open minded and patient with each other and try to learn the language of, of, of the other disciplines. Because uh unless we can speak a common language, we're kind of stuffed, aren't we? So
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's important that we look at how we're going to actually put the right frameworks in place to make this change. And everyone's talking about partnerships these days and There's a lot of mention around we should form more partnerships to develop technology, form more partnerships to deliver community value. What really is a partnership, Alan, in your mind?
1: First and foremost, it needs a a common purpose. So, what we've just been talking about in the language barrier is that we often operate at a quite a low level interface, it's quite transactional. And a partnership steps up to a high level purpose of like, how how do we address the mind to mill? challenge between mining and processing. Can we partner a, a across uh, all-body knowledge and material movement? That increases the productivity of a mine. And and, and when you get two organizations or multiple organizations, that one has solved those problems at a, at a more system level, then partnerships work. If you start going lower down in that hierarchy, you, you, you're getting into procurement, transactional a trade of information or work, and that's not a partnership. So for me, it, it's really solving things at a, at a higher level that drives partnerships.
0: Yeah, partnerships align around systems, purpose, they rely heavily on trust, uh, ability to really work together. Have you got some examples of partnerships that have worked for you, Brett, in this technology space?
2: I think, yeah, the human to human element is so important when it comes to building partnerships. I mean, you need to really get to know. The people on the other side of the fence and hopefully they're not on the other side of the fence at the end of the process because you know at the end of the day these are just people who are you know have their own set of drivers The value is different for different people and for different organizations we've tried through the TAD process to to really focus on that as you know and I think there are probably some good emerging examples of partnerships evolving out of the TAD process and I think in large part, those are driven by the kind of relationships and the you know the human to human side of things that we kind of really try to emphasise, getting to know people. You know, an example is the Envirocopper work that we're that we're doing, where we've partnered with uh, with Envirocopper to experiment with in situ recovery technologies. And that's been a process of getting to know the people in the tent and um, and inviting them into, into the tent with us to get to know each other and understand what each other's drivers are and what's important to, to those people as well. And we've got examples of people that have been willing to work for free because... Their value drivers are different, and I think having access to the ecosystem, having access to you know the assets that we have access to, having access to the SMEs that we have access to, you know, people are prepared to work for nothing if they're uh, if they're getting access to to those things.
0: You know, we've really had to think about Tad as a startup to be able to meet a lot of our partners in size and scale. The mining sector is built up of. Many different size companies, but certainly a number of large companies. How do you make partnerships equal, Alan, when you're talking about small technology companies partnering with large mining companies?
1: Katie, to be be brutally honest, it often doesn't work. You know, it's extremely difficult for big mining companies to engage with the startup community and even small METs company. Our procurement cycle and our commercial terms and payment terms and all of these things actually impose an impossible burden on these small companies. And, and so, unless there's a conscious decision by a mining company to to set up a division uh, or a function within the company that can interact at a scale and and at a commercial level with these small companies, it's actually imposing a huge risk on them. And I, I was quite honest with with small companies. I say. Be very careful about engaging with large mining companies unless there's a different procurement or engagement model because it could, it could kill your company.
0: It's certainly something that I think both sides don't go in with the intent for it to fall apart, but we see it happen so often. Something really dear to Tad's heart is to set up an environment whereby people can come in and have those customized experiences that suit their company, their technology, where they're at in their cycle. But it's not easy. It is really not easy to work out how to run that as a part of a larger company. I, I think there's a, there's a bit of a bugbearer for me here too in that a lot of companies set up innovation teams or technology teams who just deal with the startup community and with the technology providers, but they don't have a hook into resource development. And you know, it was really exciting for us in TAD this year to be working on, on the Kalkaroo project and, and get an opportunity to link into a resource development. But is that a barrier also, Alan, that the people engaging with these technology companies are not linked to the resources themselves, the mineral resources?
1: Katie, there's this huge tension. You know, Mining is a business. The bulk of the people involved are there to ensure that it's profitable and return value to the stakeholders. And so every day their core focus is is about the running of that business. And there's no bandwidth. Within that community to operate at a different speed and a different engagement terms that, that a startup community or a, you know, a small community requires. And, and so it's, 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 I think it's, it's not deliberate that it's really hard to engage with the IDP and, and the other parts of the business. It's just that they're serving a very different function. And so you have to carve out a safe space to be able to, to have that engagement because it's a bit naive to expect it's going to happen. Of a zone course, so I think what's happened with the Calgary project is there's there's a space that's been carved out where the innovation community can engage at an IDP level you know, on terms that can create value, and I think that's the important piece that's often missed. You have to create a, a different environment for these sort of processes to work.
0: It's almost a sandbox in its own right, isn't it? Somewhere to learn not just what technology you want to adopt, but what processes you want to adopt and how you're going to take those forwards. I think we probably change our processes every couple of weeks as we learn what worked and what didn't work.
2: There's a really strong how emphasis, I think, in the work that we're doing. It's not just about the technology. And I think that's been a real game changer for us in the way that we go about interacting with the, the ecosystem and and how we go about you know, um, bringing ideas to the table and, and integrating those into into the resource development process.
0: It's funny how everything keeps pointing back to people and the how in, in terms of what we approach. There's an, such an abundance of technology out there. So much is available but so much is not yet used at scale. Do we even know how to integrate what we've already got at our disposal, Alan, or have we, uh, are we always searching for something new rather than leveraging what already exists?
1: I think there's there's a lot of goodwill in mining organisations to to bring in new technology, but the barriers to entry are really high. We often deal with uncertainty in projects and operations by deploying capital. So I'm really uncertain on the hardness of this ore body. So I'm going to put in a bigger crusher. You know, there's a there's a buffer there, but once you've deployed that capital, you're now in a financial trap because you know there's a time frame through which that capital has to be paid off, and so making changes to that system then becomes really hard. You've got real, real financial barriers to do it. So that's why greenfields are so much easier, is if you have the space to think about designing mines differently that isn't driven by a largely a capital model, then you can bring in technology and you can take an integration-based approach. But on brownfield sites, you, you get forced down into point solutions with a, with a business case because of this overweight of capital that is sort of being paid off on that site.
2: There's also the tension in there around creating value for your other stakeholders as well, because, you know, if you're aiming to have a, a carbon-free mine site or a water-free mine site or a waste-free mine site, those things all come at a cost. And so I think how we go about measuring the impact and the value of of achieving those aspirations uh, for all of our stakeholders is something that i think traditionally and historically we've not been very good at and so you know developing a new set of toolkit and a new language around how we evaluate projects with respect of not just the financial implications and the financial benefits how we go about evaluating projects to achieve all those other aspirations that everyone in the mining industry has to improve the way that, that we do business i think is uh is a, an interesting challenge and i think lots of us are really only at the start of that journey
1: katie i'd, I'd like to just carry on this financial theme a, a little bit geologists in in the discovery of all bodies in their grade control practices it's a value-adding process you know you're going from a resource to a reserve and you're increasing the assets of of a company on their balance sheet. But once you move into the mining environment, and it's painful for me me to say this, you're getting into a cost centre. So everything from grade control all the way down to flotation in the mining process is a cost to the business. You know, just the thinking differently about that, well, what if we treated every handling point as an opportunity to upgrade ore and, and reject waste out of that system and so you know, crushing could become crushing and sorting, you know, so that now you've you've separated that process. Or if we had sensors on our shovels and trucks that actually, in addition to measuring the performance of the truck, we could actually understand what quality of material we were moving. Th- there would be a different discussion around the integration of technologies and the value-add of technologies in process. And and just as an example, like for all our trucks running around in operations, we know exactly what the engine temperature is. There's 200 sensors on that truck and we monitor it remotely. We have very little idea what's in the back of that truck in terms of the quality of the material. And, and that's our core business. So there's this disparity of, of how technology is being deployed to unlock value in the, in the mining process. And it requires different thinking and a different business case uh, to be able to to drive the integration journey.
0: So is that the role of the miner, or is that the role of the technology companies? We're going to come
1: back to this collaboration piece, Katie, because it, it can't be done without all parties coming coming together to, to build a business case, to get an understanding of how the technology assumptions are going to work. You can't do those in isolation.
0: It's pretty hard to overlook the fact that as we're making all this change and and all this technology comes in, because I am a believer that the industry is on a change journey and that we will see a lot of adoption in the near term. We can't overlook the skills and capabilities required to actually be able to work with the new technologies, whether they're digital or otherwise. Are we doing enough to build our future workforce to work with these technologies or even reskilling our current workforce?
1: Katie, I think the The raw data in this is quite dire. If you look at the graduation rates of mining technical people across the world from mining geoscience schools, it's absolutely plunged over the last 10 years. So we're seeing a boom, a huge demand in commodities and mines deploying capital to grow. And we're seeing the graduation of skilled mining people heading the other way. So, I hesitate to say it's, it's it's not that we're not doing enough. There's actually a real crisis in in terms of the availability of people and and many sites that i I work with are standing equipment for lack of operators and people to to work on their sites so So I think it's a it's huge challenge for us as an industry.
2: And Alan, do you think there's a challenge as well with the kind of the capability of the people we already have in the industry? Because we've talked about one of the challenges being that the average mining engineer perhaps doesn't necessarily understand the full extent of, of what's possible, um, particularly when it comes to emerging technologies.
1: Brett, I'm a glass full person when it comes to the capability of people. And I'll give you an example. If you, if you go to a supply department and you say to the lead there, I want you to buy me the cheapest truck in the market. Or you say to them, I've got this material movement challenge. Can you go out and solve this at a, at a system level? My view is people respond incredibly well to how the problem and the, and the incentive to solve it is framed. So, so I think we've got an organisational and incentive problem more so in that space than, than the capacity of our people to evolve and grow to solve these problems.
0: So I think that seems like a a good point to wind up for our listeners, but I want to give them something to take away, something to to dwell on and think about and maybe challenge their own selves with. So I'm going to ask both of you, you if you were giving advice to someone moving into this space, working predominantly with technology companies or being a technology company themselves, based on your experience and now hindsight, what advice would you give them? Brad, I'll start with you.
2: Firstly. I think people trying to break into the mining industry, whether it's individuals or technology companies, need to really understand understand the mining industry, understand the, the process, understand where the challenges are, and really know their stuff in terms of what their value proposition is. I think in particular, we've talked to lots of innovators over the last couple of years and it's quite surprising how often innovators can't articulate their value prop they will come in with a technology that already exists in the industry and you say, well, how does your technology compare to you know X, Y, Z that's already in the, in the market and already established and they sometimes really struggle to articulate that. So I think having technology companies have a really, really clear understanding and be able to really articulate what their value proposition is and how their product compares to everybody else that's in the market I think is, is really, really important.
0: What about yourself, Alan?
1: Mine's similar, and I'll share a pretty confronting story for for me when when I started as a graduate engineer and uh, on a mine site. I I was working there for about six months and identified this opportunity that I thought would add enormous value to the site. And so I wrote a letter to the general manager because this is a long time ago. We still wrote letters, and um, and the general manager. I finally got a meeting with him. And I got invited in and he said to me, Alan, is, is this the letter that you wrote? And I said, yes, it is. And he and he looked at me for about a minute and then he, he handed the letter back to me and he said, Alan, go take that piece of paper and put it in the crusher and go see how much platinum you get out of it. And I'll leave my office. Wow. It was confronting at the time, but it, but it taught me kind of a big lesson. When you're running a mine, your job is to produce metal and production, and there is, often isn't much bandwidth for other ideas, and, and, and it forced me to really think about uh, how to translate ideas into value. You know, be able to talk to Brett's point, like, what's the value proposition? Like How is this going to make a difference? And also walk a mile in your customer's shoes, what is their problem what is their day-to-day job and so understanding your value proposition understanding your your, your customer and particularly how mineral economics works there's there's a lot of great texts and 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 just taking the time to understand mineral economics will will help both of those equations so i think my advice to to people would be to just put in the effort you you have to go beyond your world if you're going to want to partner and collaborate to, to make
2: things successful
0: well, we started out with a conversation around research and integration of technology, and we've covered everything from partnerships, trust, empathy, curiosity, listening. Thank you so much, Alan Bly from Invelo Innovating Ecosystems, and Brett Triffitt from Think and Act Differently. It's been fantastic to have you both here today.
2: Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Mining Podcast. To find out more about the amazing work the TAD team do, please head to thinkactdifferently.com.au. This episode was recorded on Kaurna land at Podbooth Studios and the lands of the Wajak Noongar people, studio engineer Rory Nunk and produced and edited by Lauren McWhirter.